Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians is a small book about midway through the New Testament. We've got a couple more weeks left in our Colossians series. And I hope that uh, this has been uh, helpful for you. We have gone uh, line by line basically through Colossians. We have two messages left in Colossians. We're going to just cover four verses today and then, then we're going to cover the end of the chapter. The reason we've been studying Colossians is because of it is one of the most Christ-centered letters in the New Testament. And that's saying something because the whole Bible is about Jesus. You need to know that. The Bible is not a moral code on how to live life. It's not kind of two different testaments that are disjointed and individual little moral stories that give us principles for life. It is an overarching story about how God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus on the cross and calling all men and women and boys and girls everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And that's the unified message of the Bible. And in particular, Colossians is a particularly Christ-centered letter. And the reason it has been written, now you need to know that every, every letter, every book of the Bible has been written for a reason, whether it's recording a history of God's people in the Old Testament, or whether it's a prophetic word of God bringing the fastball to a rebellious people in the Old Testament, or whether it's a gospel accounting the life of Jesus, or whether it's a New Testament epistle or letter, which is what Colossians is, there's a reason, there's a setting, there's a context behind each letter. And the context of Colossians, just to catch us up a little bit, because it's been a while since I've talked about this, and we weren't in Colossians last week, the context is that Paul is writing to a group of people who are being subtly led astray by a sort of super spiritual teacher that is coming in and teaching them that, that, you have to, that Jesus is okay. Yes, accept the Jesus that Paul is preaching, but you need to add a little bit something to it, kind of a higher knowledge. I, I think something that we could kind of connect with is that sort of a super spirituality that sometimes floats around in the American church. Like, yeah, that's okay, but you need to kind of be, you need to do this. You need to practice this particular deal. In, in, in their age, it was you need to be a little bit more Jewish. Maybe you need to get circumcised or practice our dietary laws or you need to do this little thing or kind of attain or have this teacher or this guide. For us, it may be a set of music or a worship style or a particular liturgy or a particular uh, style of church. Whatever it is, uh, it becomes a heresy if it leads us away from the simplicity that is in Christ, because Jesus' faith in Christ plus nothing else is what justifies us. And so Paul is trying to refute that super spiritual trick that is potentially leading the Colossians astray. And he's writing to them about the simplicity and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. It's not to say that we don't need to know some other good things, but there is a sufficiency in believing and trusting in Jesus. And the gospel, which we'll talk about today, is all you need. You don't need the gospel plus a music style or the gospel plus the latest best-selling author or the gospel plus some sort of higher method of Christianity. It's Jesus plus nothing equals all that we need for life and godliness in this age. So Paul's attacking that subtle error. 
And that's what he's been doing through this book. He started out in the first and second chapter really laying down some doctrinal statements about how Christ has reconciled us through his work on the cross. And that alone is what justifies us. And then in chapter 3, he makes a transition to tell us what it should look like in our real life. And we talked about, that. hey, we need to put off sin. We need to be killing sin or it will be killing us, as the great Puritan John Owen said. And then we looked at what the gospel should look like in our homes, that husbands should serve their wives, that they should lay down their life for their wife and their children, and that wives should graciously revel in the leadership of their husband and should support him in that way, and that children should obey their parents. And now we get into chapter 4, and it's kind of like a little bit of a, 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 a catch-all. You know when you're saying goodbye to somebody... And there's just a couple things floating around in your head, kind of like when you're getting your kid ready to school. This is how it works every day at the Evangelista house. You know, we got one kid who's just really on it, like he's got everything, you know, just really, he's the first child, just ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, type A personality. And then we got the second kid, he's like, hey, baby, party time, whatever. And so we constantly have to stay on that kid, like, hey, do you got your backpack? Do you remember your lunch money? Do you got the note for the teacher? Do you have shoes? You know, do you, yeah. uh, and, and so Paul is kind of like a catch-all phrase. He's saying, hey, 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 remember this and remember that and just a couple little practical things here and just, just remember this and I want you to encourage you to do this. So it's kind of practical stuff, all that's not necessarily connected in the flow of thought of the previous part of the book, but it's just kind of, hey, hey, remember this because it's the heart of a father in the gospel for his children. And so we're going to cover just four verses today, and then we're going to do the rest the next couple Sundays where he greets some people. But today the overarching point is that, is that God wants Paul and these people to make sure that they are getting right and making clear the all-important news of what Jesus has done. And Paul prays, asks him to pray for him to that end. So we're going to talk about that. So let's read in Colossians chapter 4. And before I read, something I wanted to mention earlier. Uh, we have great news this morning. Doctors David and Amanda Scott. Amanda serves on our worship team. And uh, David's just been a great part of this church. They, I had the privilege of marrying them a couple years ago. And um, we just found out, well, I just found out. They didn't. But uh, they recently found out. Uh, that they are expecting their first child, and so um, we are just thrilled for you. They are both pharmacists and um, have just building their lives on the gospel, and uh, we are so thankful for you. Evidently, you've been doing a little bit more than counting pills, my friend, so um, way to go. We, uh, we, are, we are very grateful. That will be their first child. <laughs> All right, let's read Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read, pray, and then we're going to work our way through this text. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand this morning. Oh Lord, we're so thankful for your Bible. We are... 
We are, as we mentioned earlier, distracted people. We need your help. Uh, We vacillate between two extremes of being self-absorbed in our sin and failure or being self-righteous in our success. And so, God, we need you like only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit to come into this room in a special way and into our minds and into our hearts. And we need you to lift our heads from ourselves. We need you to make these simple words from Paul come alive to us. I, in particular, need you to use my weak and feeble words to bring life and encouragement and conviction and satisfaction and clarity in Christ today. And Lord, ultimately, we need to see and savor Jesus. We don't need a cute little sermon and three little points on how to have a better Thursday or a a better attitude. God, all those things certainly are part of living for you, but they all are a spill-off of the greatness of Christ. So Lord, today we need to see Jesus. We need to recalibrate our hearts to what he has done for us, this good news of the gospel. Lord, we have Christians in this room who need to be encouraged, who need to be freshly uh, convicted and freshly amazed at the work of Jesus on the cross. And we have very likely people in this room who are not yet believers and followers of Jesus, and they need to be made alive. They are dead and rebellious and lost and separated from you, and what awaits them is judgment forever unless they repent and believe. So God, today is, this is an important time. Would you in your kindness And through the grace of the preached word and the power of the Holy Spirit, would you draw somebody to Christ today? And God, this can only happen because you will it. So do what only you can do and use me, Lord. I am a crooked stick. I am a hypocritical, self-righteous, arrogant, confused, insecure preacher. And I need your help today. So Lord, would you draw a straight line with this crooked stick? In Jesus' good name, amen. Our outline today is just going to be the verses itself. So let's work our way through it. We want to settle down on verse 4, but we're just going to work our way through it. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Of course, we know that the, the whole of Christian life should should be a life of prayer. But Paul in particular, in this instance, is telling them to to be watchful in their prayer. There's just something about kind of the regular disciplines of the Christian life that can become monotonous and kind of become just so so regular that they sort of lose their intensity and they lose their, their life. And in this particular instance, Paul is telling them to be watchful, be aware, be in particular, have your have your, my dad is here today, and he was, he's an old high school football coach, and if I've heard him say it once, I've heard him say it a thousand times, 
He, keep your head on a swivel. You know, so if you're like a linebacker playing and you're getting ready to tackle somebody, get your head up because the, the ball may be coming. He never said it to me because I never tackled anybody. I was a wimpy little quarterback. I didn't like to get my uniform dirty. But I did hear him say it to my brother who actually was a real football player. Get your head on a swivel. Be, be aware of what God is doing. And he's telling the Colossians in particular to be watchful, to be alert, to, to think about what God wants to do in and through you as a community. This is particularly important to us because we live in the Bible Belt, man. There's a, there's a church on every street corner. Here's the question we get asked when we meet people in the community. Where do you go? Like, that's the question. Like, where do you go to church? Where do I go? I mean, where, you guys have heard me rail against, where do I go? I mean, I go, I go to the dry cleaners to pick up my clothes. I go to the Jim, I, I go to Piggly Wiggly to buy bread. I don't go to church. Like, we are the church. We are God's lights here in this world. And, and Paul is telling them to sort of get their heads up from the routine of, of just sort of monotonous Christian life and think about the fact that God, in his sovereignty and in his providence, has called little places like Crosspoint and every other church in our area that believes in Jesus to be people on a mission for the gospel. So he says, be watchful. And, and be thankful. Be thankful. Listen, I mean, we could spend all day just on that one verse. We won't, but just be thankful. People, a couple weeks ago, we heard an Indian brother pastor in North India along with one of the missionaries that we support talking about their ministry there and the work that they're doing. And we had the great privilege to have this missionary and this pastor. I won't mention their names. They've asked us to keep all of their identity off of the Internet because they serve the gospel in a hostile place where if they are found out, they will be, the American will be kicked out of the country and the Indian native pastor will be persecuted by the radical uh, Hindus and Muslims in his area. And listening to their ministry, listening to them be arrested and listening to them uh, constantly have to be worrying about attackers and people coming in and seizing uh, them as they worship, and then listening to their ministry to young girls as young as eight or nine or ten years old being sold into the sex trade, and these young girls being washed up in like a leper colony and discounted in this society, and many of them die in their 20s from diseases not cared about by their own people, and to hear this pastor going into these colonies and rescuing these young girls out of this and we, we get here today and we're a little frustrated because, because a breaker tripped out on the street. How could that happen? Oh my goodness, what if we don't have air conditioning today? A little convicting, isn't it? We need to be thankful people. God has blessed us so that we might be a blessing to others. And we are at this church. But when was the last time we really just paused to say, God, you've been good to us? In your situation, just you, you personally right now, you, just, when was the last time we were thankful? God, you have been good. In fact, just even right now, I think it would be beneficial for us to just conjure up the goodness of God in our life. That God gave us breath, that every good gift comes from him. That we are amongst some of the most prosperous and blessed and comfortable people in the world. Right now, think, right now, just think of your life. God has been good, has he not? God has been good. And if you can't right now think of that, 
And I know situations may be very difficult in this room, but I want to encourage you in just a moment as I end this message and we respond in song to make it the priority of your heart to think about the goodness of God in your life and do the emotional and spiritual work to conjure up thankfulness to God that he created us for. Don't leave this room today ungrateful or self-absorbed without giving thanks to God. Verse 3. And he says, now as you pray for yourself, being watchful in thanksgiving, at the same time pray also for us, listen to this, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. We haven't made much of a point of this, but Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians from prison. He's writing it from prison to these people. And he is saying here very specifically that the very reason that he is in prison is because he has been proclaiming the gospel, the mystery of Christ, the good news of Jesus. And that very act has been the thing that through God's providence has brought him into this place where he's now in prison and he's writing a letter to the Colossians. This is very difficult for comfortable Americans to chew on and absorb and sink into our spirits because we, we tend to think of opposition to the gospel as like some sort of sign of lack of faith or lack of anointing or lack of blessing on our part, but the New Testament seems to take it at 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Paul says that I'm here in prison because of my preaching of the gospel. And then if we go one page, couple pages over to the Philippians, he writes another letter from prison to the Philippians. And here's his attitude about being in prison, which I would mark as sort of a negative experience. I would say, well, if I'm in prison, that's, that's not good. But here's Paul's perspective of being in prison when he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1. Don't flip there, but just listen to this. Philippians 1, verse 12, he says, he's writing from prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so he's saying that things have gone south, man. It didn't work out, and now I'm in prison. And you'd expect him to say, so when are you guys coming to break me out? I mean, call the cavalry. But he says, and this is awesome. Because of God's providence in my situation, whatever it may be, the gospel is being advanced. These guards are starting to hear about Jesus, and some of these other brothers in the Lord are being encouraged by my imprisonment. God is sovereign is the point that I'm wanting to make. God is sovereign, and God is the one who opens doors. And Paul is praying to the Colossians, asking them to pray for him, that even in the midst of his seemingly less than ideal circumstance, God would open a door for the gospel to be proclaimed. And that's where he goes. And he, let's go back to uh, verse 3. Read it again. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, verse 4, and we'll spend most of our time here, and I'll be done after this, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul asked the Colossians for their prayers that he would make the mystery of Christ or the gospel of Jesus clear. 
This implies that it is possible for us to not make the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, clear. And so I want to take just a moment to make clear, to reset, to recalibrate, to once again refresh our hearts on what exactly the gospel is. If the gospel, and this is the way it is in most of America, in particular our region of America in the South, again, where we kind of live in a very religious, uh, culturally Christian area, when the gospel is assumed in a generation, the gospel is then confused, and when the gospel is confused, the gospel is lost. And so Paul prays and asks the Colossians to pray for him that he would make the gospel clear. And I want to stop today and do that for us. That's, that's all we care about as a church. We, we speak about the gospel a lot. We talk about being a gospel-centered church. We talk about being a church that believes in the Bible and is Jesus-centered. But all of that can become lip service unless we very clearly articulate what the good news of Jesus is. So I'm going to give you four words. We've done it before. And in particular, if you are a Christian, I want you to dial in because I want to help you potentially communicate the gospel more clearly in your life. And if you are not a Christian and you are aware of that fact, I want you to listen in particularly very clearly. I'm going to give you four words that I think help us summarize the gospel. Those four words are God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. Many times in church culture, especially in the South, we think that the gospel is that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Well, those statements, certainly the second one is true, but those statements don't really capture the whole of what the gospel is. The gospel, which is a word in Greek, evangelion, of which I, by the way, get my last name, is a word that means the good news. And the good news starts with the good and gracious creator. We are not, listen to me, we are not the center of the universe. God is not the creator of all things, just so that you and I might have our best life now in these 70 or 80 years. This world and everything in it, in this whole universe, centers around the great, good, glorious creator, God. The Bible throughout in the Old and New Testament talks about how God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God, in his graciousness and in his overflowing of his joy, decided in his providence and in his wisdom to create us. The Trinity was not lonely. <laughs> it was not up in heaven. They hadn't gone through all the card games, and God says to Jesus, well, what are we going to do now? Oh, I know. We need something. Let's create mankind. God did not need us. God doesn't need our fellowship. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need anything. God is completely self-sufficient, self-glorifying, good. God is good. God is God apart from you and me. But in his providence and in his wisdom, God creates. God creates this world. In fact, the Bible calls it good. Not just good, but very good. And as a pinnacle of that creation, God created us, mankind, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and then everyone after that. That's us. That's the second word. The first word to summarize the gospel is God. The second word is man. That's us. Now, in a mystery that we can never know this side of eternity, God gave us 
a will, an ability to rebel against him, and we did. The Bible says in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And then later on in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says that at that moment, in a spiritual, mysterious way, all of us participated in that rebellion against God. And so although God gave us everything we needed, we have all rebelled against God. Every person in this room, whether we are a terrorist that flies planes into buildings or whether we're good little Baptist kids that grow up in the South, every person in this room, listen to me, this may be the most important thing that you hear because you may not have heard this before, but every person in this room, whether it is through, whether it is through obvious sin or whether through, it is through a life of self-righteousness and moralism, all of us have rebelled against God. The obvious sinner rebels and goes after all these broken things. The self-righteous religious person trusts in themselves for their right standing with God. This is all a consequence of sin. We have all fallen. The Bible is full of this. If you want to be, if you, if you want a, a deeper explanation of this, read one of the most important chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 3. It says all of us, all of us are accountable to God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's some quotations from the Old Testament, Psalms in particular, which says that each of us, we all seek to do evil deep inwardly. Even the good, seemingly moral person has, at the end of the day, if they do not trust in what Jesus did, they have rebelled against him because they are trusting in their own righteousness and in their own self, which is a crime of treason against the creator God who made everything for himself. And so all of us in this room have rebelled. There are no good people. There are only redeemed people and rebellious people. Part of that rebellion, and this is very important, it brought with it not just a neutralizing effect. It didn't just diminish us so that we get more frustrated or we can't have a good life or things are harder for us. The sin and rebellion that each person in this room has participated in, whether it's crazy sin or self-righteousness, brings with it the consequence of spiritual death. The Bible says that all have sinned and that it has killed us. It hasn't just diminished us, it has killed us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. It says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 2, we talked about it a couple months ago, says that we are dead in our sins. And so although we may be physically alive and emotionally alive, we are spiritually dead. Although a person that is spiritually dead may be able to accomplish many things in these 70 or 80 years that God and his common grace gives, we are all, all ultimately spiritually dead and separated from God. We are dead. That brings us to the third word of the gospel, God, man, and now the third word, Christ. God, in his kindness, sends Jesus to be a sacrifice to be the wrath-bearing substitute. Because see, God is righteous. He's, he's just. He, we have rebelled against the creator of the universe. And God, because he's good and holy, and that's his character, he can't just brush over the rebellion of his creation. You may ask, you may ask, and I think this is a legitimate question, you may ask, why would God even allow for there to be a rebellion? And to that, we do not have a biblical answer. There are some things that we just do not know. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 that his ways are past finding out. 
there are some things that we do not know. And one of the things that we do not know is why God in his providence would allow even a fall. The only hint of an answer we have is in Romans chapter 9 that says that God, in his sovereign providence, allowed for this to happen so that as he redeems a lost creation and some vessels are prepared for destruction and some vessels are prepared for honor, that God would be deemed more glorious in the universe. So God, in his self-glorifying wisdom and in his great good providence has allowed for the sake of a fall so that there would be a display of his redeeming love in this universe. And if that strikes you as incredibly selfish or hard of God, then you need to deal with the biblical God because that is the only answers that the scriptures point to. That reorients our life from a God who is up there wringing his hands like picking four-leaf clovers, he loves me, he loves me not, to being a sovereign God who does all things for his glory and the good of his people who he's redeeming. And he has, in his providence, allowed for human rebellion so that his display, his redeeming love, his power to save would be displayed. And that's difficult for self-centered Americans to grapple, but that is the truth. And so God, in his providence and in his righteousness must maintain his holiness sin must be punished sin must be punished for God to maintain his holiness and sin is punished in the person of Jesus Jesus God in the flesh comes and lives a life he was a real man he was a baby he was pushed around in school he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. There's nothing in this room, there is no manner of temptation that any person in this room is going to that Jesus did not endure and conquer righteously. The Bible says that he lived a perfect life. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 talk about he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And so Jesus becomes the perfect man. He became what Adam could not do. He became the righteous man, the perfect man. He lived a life of perfection. Think about that for a second. Now, I think, just think about, think if it's possible. I mean, not just sinning with your hands and your feet, but just think about not sinning internally, not like thinking anything negative. You can maybe do that for 10 seconds, right? No, no, is there some honesty here? Thank you, sister. But think about, think about in your heart, not even having a negative thought or sarcastic attitude For 33 years, Jesus did that. And that is important because Jesus becomes a perfect sacrifice. He becomes an acceptable substitute for us. And he willingly lays down his life, the Bible says, on the cross. And he dies as a substitute for us. You see, our sins had to be punished. And so what happens on the cross is God, listen, this is not, this isn't, you don't hear this very often. But God's anger, God's wrath, Those are biblical words. This isn't just hellfire and brimstone, some guy, some mean old cat with big hair and a suit spitting at you in the fundamentalist south. This is Bible. God in his holiness pours out his wrath not on all humanity but on Jesus. And because Jesus is perfect and acceptable, he becomes a satisfactory sacrifice for all those that will repent and believe. Jesus absorbs. There's a biblical word. It's called propitiation. It means that Jesus, he's like the, he's like the redeeming sponge. He, he, he takes up all. He exhausts God's righteous judgment against sin. He 
empties it, every drop of God's wrath against those that would repent and believe in Jesus' sacrifice. He, he takes it away, and then he diverts God's justice and wrath into favor for those that will repent and believe. And so Jesus becomes the wrath-absorbing, debt-canceling sacrifice on the cross. That's Jesus. That's what he does. And he doesn't just stay in the grave. He then rises again in victory over sin and death and now commands, as the apostles say in Acts, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now this is so important. This is, this is so important. Do not miss this. Because the wrath absorbing work of Jesus that diverts God's justice and anger against our rebellion and turns it into favor and blessing and life forevermore only applies, only is received by those that respond, that repent and believe in Jesus. It doesn't just happen because you're a kid that grew up in the South or because your grandma was a piano player at 42nd Baptist. It is only received by those that repent and believe. And that's the fourth word of the gospel. We've got God, who is the all-sufficient, self-glorifying, all-wise, all-good creator, who in his providence creates man who rebels, and our rebellion brings with it spiritual death. And then we have the third word, Jesus, who comes and lives a perfect life, lays his life down as a willing sacrifice to absorb judgment and punishment that should have been ours, and then defeats it on the cross by rising again, and now calls all men everywhere to repent. That brings us to our fourth word response. This only applies to those that repent and believe. And this is the scandal of Christianity because we are wired. We want to do something, right? I mean, if I, if I break your window, I want to pay for it. I want to go to a glass company. I want to go to Lowe's and I want to fix it. If I dent your car, I call my insurance company. We call the cop. We stand out in the middle of the thing, wait 30 minutes, do it, exchange things. We, I get, we, gotta, we gotta make up. We gotta make up for our wrong. But the scandal of Christianity, the scandal of the cross is that Jesus did it. And the only thing that makes you right with God is not trying to live better or trying to do better, but repenting and believing. These are two words. They're two edges of the same sword. It means turning from self-reliance, turning from your instinct to make it right by your own self and trusting in what Jesus did alone. This is what the Protestant reformers called justification by faith alone. We are justified by faith. We, we are, the only reason we are in right standing with God is not because we in and of ourselves have cleaned up our act or we've stopped cheating or we've stopped lying or we've stopped downloading this or we've stopped cheating. We are justified by what Christ did alone and faith in him. Now, if you are astute, and if you're kind of a technical thinker, you may be thinking, I'm tracking with you, preach. But you just said a few minutes ago that because of my sin, I am spiritually dead. Now, how can I exercise faith when I'm spiritually dead? Oh, there's a dilemma. There's a dilemma. And here's why the good news is even better than we thought. Because the good news itself, the actual proclamation, that piece of information, that gospel, 
that creates what it commands. Jesus commands us to repent and believe, and with it comes the power to believe. That the, literally, the very, the very, the very news, the piece of information, the gospel itself creates what it commands. A great analogy of this is found in John chapter 11 in the resurrection of Lazarus. That story is in the Bible, not just to prove that Jesus has power over physical life and death, which he does, but it is a picture for us of how dead people come to faith. Jesus knows this man, Lazarus, who is the brother of a couple of his friends, and Jesus is away. He hears that Lazarus is sick, potentially dead, takes his own sweet time, doesn't seem to be rushed. He knows what's going to happen because he's God. He eventually gets there after four days, and Lazarus is dead. In fact, in the King James, it says that he stinketh. That's right. It's in the Bible. It's actually there. He stinketh. In other words, his body didn't smell good. And Jesus comes to the grave where Lazarus is dead, and Jesus, through the power of his word, through the power of his news, through the power, because he is God, he calls dead Lazarus to get up. And that's the power of the gospel. That's the good news for you today is that you can't do anything. Jesus calls you and his very call for him who has ears to hear brings life to a dead heart. That's good news, man. You know why that's good news? Because my salvation doesn't rest on the fact that I was a pretty smart American who was in the gifted program in elementary school. We used to call it GATE, gifted and talented education. Little wimpy little punks carrying their books everywhere. And I could read, man. I could read. I could know stuff. I didn't do homework one day in high school and I got A's. And I got to West Point. And Berkeley was a better student than I was, but I got through West Point. And now Rose is going to Harvard where people carry around books and they're self-righteous and they're smart. But I couldn't figure it out. The thing is, is that I was dead in my sin. And no amount of human smartness or boasting or self-sufficiency will do. And that is good news. Because whether you are, whether you can't tie your shoe in the morning or whether you have 14 PhDs, it all happens the same way. Not by human wisdom, but by the grace and the command, the creating, the life creating command of the gospel. So you may be saying, yeah, give it up. No, 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 no. You're going to give it to me, baby. Give it to me. I don't know. You missed it. No, you missed it. If there's another opportunity, maybe there will be. I don't know. So here's the good news. To him who has ears to hear. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing this? And I believe that is evidence that either you are a Christian already God in his kindness is awakening your soul once again so that you would be freshly amazed. That you would be watchful and thankful. That you would join in his mission and that he would redouble your confidence in the gospel, not in church culture or religion, but that he would would freshly infuse you with a confidence in the gospel so that you would be emboldened to preach it because it is not your witness. It is not your sufficiency. It is not all your preparation. It is not the the eloquence of how you present. It is the power of the gospel. Now, yes, there are admonitions in Scripture for us to, to prepare, to study, to show ourselves approved. Yes, 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 yes. But the power, the life giving power is Jesus. 
And so if you are already a Christian today, I think what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you is cause you to be freshly amazed and to be redoubled in your confidence in the good news and to be thankful that it is God who opens doors, not you. And so if you have a teenager that is wandering or a friend who is away from God, God wants you to be freshly amazed in the power of the gospel today. And if you are not a Christian and you are hearing this today or it has become, and this is more likely, you have become aware of the fact by just these last 40 minutes that you are not a Christian and that your sin has not been atoned for, that you are accountable to God for your rebellion. Hearing that, I believe that is evidence that God, even as we speak, is creating in you the very thing that you cannot give. The Bible in the New Testament says the repentance is a gift. It's not something you conjure up. Faith is a gift. It's not something you conjure up. God is giving you faith. He's saving. He's bringing you alive. You're a, you're a spiritual modern-day Lazarus. Jesus is saying, get up. Get up from your sin. Get up from your self-reliance. Get up. Get up, and you are coming alive. You're being born again. Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says that we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. He is making you into a new creation. Here's what you do. Here's the first, here's the first thing you do when you're aware of that. You turn and trust. You repent and believe. The first breath of a newborn baby is to breathe. The doctor slaps his hiney and he breathes. The first breath of a new Christian is faith and trust in Jesus. Faith and trust in Jesus. Friends, you must do that to receive Jesus. And this may sound harsh, what I'm going to say, and I'm going to end with this. But if you do not do this, the wrath of God remains on you. Jesus says that in John chapter 3. The wrath of God remains on you. Now you can say that's not fair. Look, I understand that we live in a very, very advanced era where we think that we have all the answers and that God's got to be sort of up there for us, but the Bible's clear. Repent and believe. That's the gospel. Two people in this room, those that have received it, God wants you to be freshly amazed at that good news. Those that have not received it, today, do you hear his voice? Do you hear the life-giving voice of Jesus? Do you hear the command that creates what it calls for? It means that Jesus is making you alive. The gospel, the good news. The good news of Jesus hitting your heart and making it alive. Repent and believe. Turn and trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. Now let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that not many of us were wise according to worldly standards, not many of us were powerful, not many of us were of noble birth, but you chose, Lord, what was foolish in this world to shame the wise. You chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. You chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring 
to nothing things that are. And you did this, Lord, so that none of us could boast, none of us could say that we were more intelligent than the guy down the street, or none of us could lean on the fact that we were born in the West where Christianity has flourished. None of us could lean on that. You did this. You caused this to be the means of salvation so that all glory and all praise would reflect back to you, not to human sufficiency. God, we must admit that at first blush, this is offensive to us because we want to be the center of things, which is, which is, an, it is further evidence of our idolatry. And so God, today, would you, would you help us rest in the spectacularly good and scandalous news of the gospel, which we want to make utterly clear here that salvation is in Christ alone. And that you give, you supply what you command. And that's how we are born again, not by works, not by church attendance, not by good thoughts, not by gritting our teeth and trying hard, but we are born again by your power. That is spectacularly good news. And so God, help us respond right now. Help us respond. If we're a Christian already, help us realize now that we are people on a mission, that the rest of our life is to be spent glorifying you, to living in your way, conforming our life into the image of Christ, doing the work of sanctification, growing in Jesus, living by the scriptures. God, help us with that. If there is a Christian in this room who is struggling in sin, who is dealing with habitual sin, help them realize that that is not who they are. They are born again. They are blood-bought. They are redeemed. They are justified. They are new. They are not the old man. They are the new man. So God, make them freshly amazed at grace today so that they would live for you and that actually living for you is the most pleasurable thing they can do. So if they're, they're veering off, God, if they're being enticed by some broken thing, God, would you, would you lift up their eyes and let them see the cross again so that they'll be freshly amazed in the goodness and the joy of Jesus? And God, if there's a person in this room who is self-righteous or lost in their sin, would you do what only you can do? Would you make them alive? God, we don't care. We don't need a new church building. We don't need, we don't need stuff. We don't need nice carpet and kids' things and sound systems and air conditioning and screens and projectors and coffee shops and little cute little chairs that you find in a magazine. We don't need any of that junk, God, if we don't get this right. That Christ alone saves. And that he gives the power. And so Jesus, would you cause somebody in this room who's relied on themselves, relied on their grit, or has resisted you in their sin, would you, would you make Jesus irresistible? Would you bring them alive? And would you cause their first breath out of that spiritual birth canal to be faith and trust in I pray that you do this to make yourself glorious. In Jesus' name, amen.